We're going to continue uh, this morning our look at um, the vision, the mission, the core values of our church, uh, especially as we're getting ready to move into another uh, location. And so I've printed in your bulletin uh, the passage for today, which is Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And uh, so you can look at that, the printed version, or if you have your scriptures with you, we invite you to open them to Ephesians 4. Uh, and we'll start reading in verse, verse 7. Now hear God's word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I don't know uh, how most of you learned how to drive. I'm not sure uh, if you were taught in driver's ed when I was in high school. They had a program, you actually went to a class, driver's ed, and then at some point you learned all the rules of the road, you learned the laws and so forth, and then at some point you got in the car and you actually drove with an instructor who was usually terrified, and uh, he had on his side of the, uh, uh, of the car uh, a brake pedal so he could at least stop the car. I don't think in my instruction that he had an extra steering wheel, although I'm sure he wanted one. Uh, but I think he just had a brake pedal. And uh, years later, I learned to fly an airplane. I became a pilot, a single-engine pilot, along with my brother and Marty V and my dad. And a whole bunch of us uh, got our pilot's license. The same thing was true. We went to school, went to ground school, and learned all the rules of the airplane and the rules of flying and what made an airplane fly. But at some point, we had to actually get into the airplane and actually fly with an instructor. Now, in an airplane, they, they had the identical controls that you had, and they could uh, interrupt your mistakes at any moment, thanks be to God. Um, in any case, to learn to do something, to learn to be something, there's a certain amount of instruction that you need, just plain old classroom instruction. You've got to learn the data. You've got to learn the facts. But as all of you know, whether it's something as simple as learning to drive or if it's something as complex as being a doctor 
uh, or a lawyer or an engineer. Once you're done with the classroom, you actually have to go get into the profession and actually practice. That's why they call it the practice of medicine or the practice of law or the practice of being a pastor. You don't really learn all you need to learn in a classroom. You have to be trained by somebody. Someone actually has to stand over you. And uh, as I learned uh, working out with Scott at the gym, you have to have someone who shows you how to lift the weight, how to, how to move it properly, otherwise you can end up hurting yourself. And so discipleship is exactly the same thing. There's a certain amount of data that you need to know and you need to learn. And we do that in number of ways, Sunday school, Monday night theology class, Sunday morning, hopefully you don't fall asleep during the sermon, you pay attention, you take a few notes, you try to remember what's being said. But at some point you have to actually get out into the world and practice. And here is where I think as Christians it starts to break down. There's too much, especially in the Western world, there's too much individualistic Christianity. We don't often go, as Jesus instructed, by twos and threes. We don't follow along and see how it's done. We don't pay attention to, to someone who's already been there and done that to see how it's done. And discipleship is very, very unique. One of the things that we have been called, we have not been called, let me be very blunt, we have not been called to have children's ministry. We have not been called to have women's ministry. We have not been called to have men's ministry. We have not been commanded by Jesus to even have church in, in the exact sense that we often formulate church. There are a lot of things in Scripture that are left just without a lot of guidelines. We're supposed to use our common sense, put things together, make them work. But one thing we were commanded to do, it was not a suggestion, it is an imperative in the Greek, and it's an imperative in the English, it is a command. Go into all the world, make disciples. Now how we make disciples, God has left open to us. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we get ready to move, we need to energize our discipleship ministry. Otherwise, we're just going to go move out there to the west side, the further west side of El Paso, and just do business as usual. But what I'm hoping is that we can go out there and actually accomplish the things we've left uh, or put forward these past few weeks. Re-energize them. Reintroduce them. And some of you who read our literature, go online, look at the website, you know what these things are, but many don't. And I understand that. And that's why uh, I, along with the session, felt it was necessary to kind of go over things. So today we're going to talk about the second part of our mission. Our mission. Here's the mission. Christ the King will achieve her vision, our vision of reaching out into our city by winsomely evangelizing the lost. That was the first thing. We talked about it last week. And to be very frank, folks, I think Christ the King, our church, is a little weak on evangelism. A little weak. On another aspect of evangelism, we're very strong. And I'll try to maybe talk a little bit about that in a moment. But I think a certain part of our ministry, our, our particular church, we're a little weak on evangelism. Second part is, we will ev ev winsomely evangelize the lost. It, second part is, intentionally make mature and equipped believers. Now that 
is a strength of our church. Now, some of you haven't been here long enough to avail yourself of these uh, things, which I'll be talking about in a few moments. But we have been very good over the past 13 years of making and equipping disciples. We've done it through a number of means, and I'll talk about those in a minute. Third, third aspect of our mission is this one, aggressively sending workers into the harvest field through missions, church planning, and Christian education. I think Christ the King also does that very well. And again, some of you haven't availed yourself of those things, but if you've come to our Monday night theology class or if you've come to uh, meet with me at Kinley or Starbucks and we've had our pop theology classes there uh, in this the, a year ago, not this past year, but in, in the past, they were very good, very rich and enlightening. People actually left there. I was told over and over again at theology class and our pop theology night and some of the other things we've done, uh, these small groups, man, I just never really, I never heard that before. I never understood that part of my Christianity. It's like a light went on and dawned. So I think two of the three were doing well, intentionally making disciples and, uh, and doing the church planning. We spend for a small church, folks, and I'll have some of these statistics for you in the future. We give an enormous amount of money relative to our budget, to missions, church planting, uh, HLI, to things like that, uh, that. When you combine it all together and you look at it, you go, how could a little church like this with 100 people, how could we possibly give this much money to these endeavors? Our church planting network, just as an example, very quickly, we have planted over 100 churches in the past decade, a little over a decade now, a hundred churches, Christ the King, your church, this church, being the first one in 1998, funded by the Church Planting Network. A hundred churches, Christ the King being the first one. And we're still here, thanks be to God, after 13 years, we're still here. And many of our churches, we have an 80% success rate. Most denominations, even in our PCA, our PCA in general has an 80% failure rate of church plants. That's the norm. But at the Southwest Church Planting Network, because we have several million dollars in a trust fund, we have been successful 80% of the time planting churches. And so it's a story to be excited about, a story to revel in, to be proud of in a good way, not a haughty way, but in a good way. We have been good at evangelism, we have been not so good at evangelism, but good at discipleship, good at sending people into the harvest field, either through foreign, local missions, or church planting. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. So what is discipleship? Let me give you a definition. This is our working definition for our church. And it comes from Randy Pope and the journey material that we use for discipleship. It is intentionally making a mature and equipped believer. What that means is that you can come to faith in Christ, but you've got to grow. You have to grow up. And growing up is not just simply becoming more moral and keeping more rules and being a better behaved person. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. It is also becoming more aware of who you are, the kind of person you are. Being able to go inside... uh, 
introspectively and see what is going on inside each of us. You know, from the time we're born till the time we die, we're wired a certain way. Your, your DNA controls a lot of what you do. But there are also things that we learn intuitively. And those things are important. And how you learn them and how you put them into action, some of them are going to make you better, going to make you more moral, more, more at keeping rules and being good, just a good person. Others are going to make you more aware. There's not a week that goes by, folks, that I don't see my sin glaring back at me. Sometimes it's horrifying when you look at yourself and you, and you really have the gospel clarity, what we'll call gospel clarity, of being able to really see yourself for who you are. Some of it's not a pretty sight. Some of it is a pretty sight. Some of you say, you know, I, I really do care about people. I really do like to work hard. You know, I'm willing to do these things. I don't have to force myself to do certain good things. But there's another part of us that resists And it's in that discipleship. And if you try to go it alone, if you try to do it alone, you will be 100% ineffective. You just simply will not be able to do it. And sadly, American Christianity is saturated with this idea, I just need my Bible and the Holy Spirit and I can do it. I'm good. I'm good to go. Holy Spirit and the Bible. And I tell my discipleship group and have told them for years, the most dangerous person on planet earth is somebody that has a Bible and the Holy Spirit. Because from those people come every sort of what John Calvin and the Apostle Paul calls concupiscence. Well, whatever. Some crazy word that means heresy. That you're going to be nutty in your expression of Christianity. You need other people around you. You need the history of the church, what the church has stood for, for 2,000 years. You've got to have that. And if you don't have it, you will go wild and crazy. Turn on TV, any late night Christian show, and you will see absolute craziness with very little truth. Very little truth. Now their churches are packed, they've got 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people, they're making millions of dollars, and it, it, it's, like, it's like seeing a pile of gold. It, you know, it's the glitter sometimes takes it. Well, they're so successful, they must being, be being blessed by God. Look at how successful they are, they must be being blessed by God. Well, with that logic, so is the mafia. Okay, so are a lot of illegal enterprises that are doing really well. Are you going to say they're blessed by God? No. But find somebody and talk to them and they say, you know, I was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. And you see a changed life. You see somebody who's, who's really more in touch with themselves and their feelings and their real true self. And it doesn't make them prideful or haughty. It makes them humble and attractive and winsome. And you want to get to know them. And you're not afraid to share your own failures with that person. Because you know they're not going to hold their nose and say, Oh my, I can't believe you did that. Instead, you're going to see compassion and brokenness in their life. You're going to see, I understand what you're going through. I've been through the same thing. Really? You too? Yes, me too. 
I know what it is to hurt. I know what it is to have the joy of having conquered some sin in my life and been able to move on. And we all need that. So discipleship is essential. We're going to look at it very quickly under three heads. The giver, the gift, and the purpose. Now I chose, intentionally didn't choose uh, Matthew 28, which is go and make disciples, because I think that speaks for itself. But rather I chose this picture from Ephesians to try to help give you an idea of what the mission of our church should look like. Not only as a corporate entity, as a group, but also individually. How your life should look each and every day that you live. The giver, the gift, uh, and the purpose. So let's go quickly with this. The giver, verse, starting in verse 7, it says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then he goes on to, uh, to quote this Old Testament scripture. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives captive and he gave gifts to men. It was very common for a king that when he conquered a country, he would take all their stuff, most of it he would keep for himself, the spoils, what we call the spoils of war, but then he would call his commanders and his, his generals and his field marshals, the powers that be, and he would distribute to them gifts from the spoils of war. And he would tell him, tell his commanders, you take these gifts and you distribute them to your men. And so the uh, commander would then take the gifts, the pile of whatever it was, the gold, the silver, the slaves, the livestock, and he would go and he would separate and give to his men. So everyone shared, listen, everyone shared in the victory of the great king. The great king conquered. He took the gifts. They would often have a parade and they would go through the street and they would, they would trail behind them wagons full of gifts and slaves and animals of the land they had conquered and they would throw things out to the crowd, you know. Then they would go to their encampment and they would separate the spoils. He gave gifts to men. And what it tells us here is that the giver, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ had a gift. So the giver of the gift is no one less than the captain of our salvation, our great commander, the king who conquered death, hell, and the grave. And now behind him is this train of conquered things that he has conquered. And he has poured out these gifts to men, to people, men and women. Men being the generic term. He gave gifts to men. Then in verse 11a, it's very interesting, if you look at verse 11, it says, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and so on. But in Greek, it's very interesting. The Greek is better translated this way. It's an emphatic. I don't know why they didn't do it in English. It would have been pretty cool if if somebody had done it. But here's how it should sound. He himself gave, he and no other. He Himself gave, He and no other. In other words, Paul is making it clear that the, the war, the battle that was fought, this singular battle starting 
when Jesus was born, but really culminating and, and beginning its initiation in the Garden of Gethsemane as he struggled mightily with the will of God for his life, as every one of you knows how difficult that is. I struggle with it myself every day. I'm sure many of you do. What does God want from me? And it was clear to Jesus what God wanted from him. I want you to go to the cross. But Father, I love you. I've been obedient. I have not sinned. I want you to go. And he said, I'll go. I'll do it. For love's sake, for your sake, I'll sacrifice myself. He himself, he and no other. There was no one there to comfort him. No one stood at his side and propped him up as they did Moses with Judah on one side and the high priest on the other, holding him up. No, there was no one to hold him up. He went alone into the jaws of death. He himself, he and no other. He gave gifts unto men. One commentator said this, ministers of the gospel in their many capacities come directly as a gift of Christ to His beloved church. Jesus' intention, listen, His intention is that the church, her ministry, her ministers, equip believers. So the church, folks, this is the point. The church is not peripheral. It's not just something that's out here on the periphery of our lives and we look at our watch and we go, oh my goodness, it's Sunday. We better get dressed and go to church because today is the day we go to church. And it's a peripheral thing. It's one of the many things that sit out there in the, the, the orbit of our const- the constellation of our lives, the solar system of our lives. And we are the center of that constellation. We are the heart of the universe. And we take these things and we pluck them out and we put them up there and they orbit nicely and neatly around our lives. And religion, our faith in Jesus, becomes one of those things that we conveniently put out there and it orbits and we bring it in closer once in a while and then it goes back out. The reality is, what Paul is saying is, The church, her ministers, her ministries are to be central to the universe, the solar system of our lives. Not just one day in seven, but every day. We are to come together one day in seven to worship the great God. But then we are to leave here with the mission of going out and training and equipping and learning so that we can be trained and equipped to make disciples. Not an option. It is a command. Is it going to take time and sacrifice? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be very blunt, it is going to take a lot of time. It's going to take sacrifice. I don't care what age you are, I don't care who you are, you're going to have to give up something to do this. And I, I just don't want to mince words. Being a disciple maker is going to require a deep commitment on yourself. And being a discipled person, someone who looks in themselves and they say, you know, my Christian life is not maturing. I'm not equipped. I don't even know what to say to somebody if they were to ask me, you know, why did God create the devil? What would I say? He was having an off day? What would I say? How would I even know how to answer such a question? 
You see, you can't just come up with these things on your own. You have to be instructed. Someone's got to help you. And they can't do it often in a classroom, just rolling out the 23 reasons for the existence of evil. That's not enough. You've got to actually be sitting across the table from someone who's asking the question to somebody who knows the answer and you are an observer and you're watching and seeing how it's done. You see, that's discipleship. You've got to be able to get in the helicopter uh, next to a C- Colonel O'Connor and you've got to actually watch how it's done. You can learn all about it. But somebody has got to be there and you're operating the controls together. You're learning the overlearned responses. You're, you're actually seeing it being done. You're feeling it. We're playing football or basketball or learning to bake a cake, for goodness sakes, or chocolate chip cookies. That's a hint. Chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> you know, you can read it in a book and you can try doing it, but there's something different when you're standing next to your grandmother and she's doing it. And she's not even looking at the book and doing all this magical stuff that's not in the book. And you go, wow, this is amazing. Now I know how to make chocolate chip cookies because someone showed me how to do it. This is discipleship. He gave, him, he gave these gifts to us. He Himself and no other. Jesus' intention is to do this so the church cannot be peripheral. It's central to what we do. So let's look for a moment quickly at the gift. There's two things. There's a lot of things about the gift, but I want to point these two out. One of them is obvious. The other one I don't think is so obvious, which may, may surprise some of you. Look at verse 7. He said, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So his, his gift giving is gracious. First of all, it's not something you earn or something you deserve. It is something He wants to give you out of pure grace, out of pure kindness. Why? Because He loves you and He wants you to know how to make chocolate chip cookies. He wants you to know how to make disciples. He wants you to know how to operate successfully in the world around you. How to truly disciple your children. Parents, let me just say this, and and I hope none of you... Surely some of you are going to get offended, but I'm going to go ahead and say it's my job. If all you're teaching your children is to keep the rules, you are ruining them. They must learn the truth of the gospel. Now, if your life is characterized by keeping the rules, and you believe, I'm talking to the adults now, if you believe that your acceptance before Jesus Christ is based on your performance, then I'm begging you with all my heart, come and see me. You need to hear the gospel and you need to become a Christian. Because Christians have a deep understanding that their relationship and status to the Lord and Creator of the universe is purely 100% by grace. You cannot earn it. But very often, as parents, I did it to my kids, to my everlasting shame. I choke up when I think of it. But whenever I think of what I did to my children, I made them, you can have me if you do what I say and you do it to my satisfaction. Then I'll give you me. Now I'm not saying you shouldn't have rules in your home. You should have rules and you should enforce them, parents. But if ever your children get the idea that their relationship with you is based on how well they're doing, you're going to lose your kids. I just heard this week of a family some of you know whose children were raised in the strictest 
They went on mission trips. They did everything you can. They were strict, strict, strict down to the bottom. And now they're grown and they have left the church. Adios. Done with you. Now, they may come back. God willing, they'll come back. But that kind of rule, that kind of driving into the lives of somebody, your acceptance is based on your performance, only makes them run. It's okay in work. It's okay in other places. But it just, it's not okay when it comes to relationships. No wife wants to believe that her husband loves her. I've done this to my own wife. Some of you have done it to your wives. Some of you wives have done it to your husband. That our acceptance of one another in our marriage relationship is based on your performance. Yes? Are you going to be honest or are you just going to sit there and look at me? Somebody say amen. All right. It's based on your performance. You do this, you hold up your end of the bargain. I will do this and I will hold up my end of the bargain. Hey, how's that working for you? Is that a great marriage or what? But when you tell your spouse, and it's hard to do, I can't say I always do it myself, but when you can say, me for you, no matter what happens, I'm all in. In other words, 100%, no 50-50, 100%. And they say the same thing back to you, 100%. Then you have magic. Then you have a real marriage. You have something that honors God because that is the reflection of, of His relationship to us. has Have any of you ever, ever gone to God and said to Him, I'm so sorry for what I did. Uh, I, I, please forgive me. And He says back to you, I will, in the Scripture or any other way, I don't care if you hear a voice from heaven, if some voice says back to you, yeah, I'll forgive you, but what do you think you're hearing? Who do you think you're hearing? Do you think you're hearing the God who sent His Son to the cross? Or do you hear someone else's voice? Work for me. Do for me. Obey me. Then I'll love you. Then I'll do for you. Christianity is the only religion in the world that God never says that. You do for me, then I'll do for you. He always comes first to us. Gift is gracious. It's an enabling and power of the Holy Spirit for service. It's not for daily living. It's so that you can help other people. So that you can actually effectively parent your children. So that you can be an effective spouse. So you can be a worker that other people recognize. You don't have to crush your co-workers in order to advance your career. They just see you working hard and doing a job well done. You see, it changes the dynamics of our life in such a seminal way that it's truly uh, remarkable. Second thing, I think, is the revelation in all this. The gifts are gracious, number one. But secondly, Paul goes to lengths here, very specifically, to say the gifts are people, not things. We think of things, well, what, you, you go to churches, sometimes a new member will join a church and they get a survey. What are my gifts? And they're supposed to fill it out so that the church can assess their giftedness and find out where we can use you. See, we only have a certain number of, of pairs of pliers. We need some hammers. And of course, we need screwdrivers because we've got a lot of loose screws in our church. You see, there's, there's this utilitarian idea that 
that destroys relationship, destroys meaningful relationship. How am I going to be used? I don't like to use that language. I've made it clear. I think it's counterproductive in the church. And I don't like to hear people say, how can you use me? I would rather you come to the church or to the elders of the church and say, what can I do to serve this church? Instead of how can I be used? I know it's picky, but I'm a Presbyterian and that's what we do. We parse words. And so I don't, like, I don't like use because it implies utilitarianism rather than relationship. What can I do to serve you? How can I be of help to you? The gifts are people, folks. They're not things. He gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to people. And the gifts, it's not, it, let me see if I can say this right, it's not that the gifts are given to people as people as so much as people are given as gifts to the church that's what paul is saying it's not that gifts are given to people as people are given as gifts to the church and he goes on to name them that's why we're getting at verse 8 apostolos he's given us special emissaries that take the message from one place and move it to another place see not every place has the gospel. There are places where the, the gospel is unknown. And so he's saying these special people take gospel from one place and move it to another place. They're apostolos. And there were 11, and then they added Matthias, made 12 after Judas hung himself. So they had 12 original. And upon that foundation, the apostles teach us, upon those building stones, the rest of the church is being built as living stones. So you are integral to the ministry of the church. Then there are evangelists. Evangelists are like heralds. They're people that proclaim the gospel. And we're most familiar with evangelists like uh, uh, Billy Graham or Bill Bright or any number, uh, Luis Palau. Any number of men whose job, it seems, their giftedness is to go out and proclaim the gospel in great and magnificent uh, ways like Philip did taking people from non-faith to faith. There are gifts in that area. Then there were prophets like Agabus. Uh, there's no, say nothing of the Old Testament prophets, but, but New Testament prophets like Agabus and Philip's daughters. Now those of you that don't believe that women have any place, they should just be silent and be quiet. That is not the belief of Christ the King Presbyterian Church. We believe that women have an equal stake in ministry in our church except only except for those things limited to ordained ministry. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them for you. But that is the philosophy of ministry of our church, and it's non-negotiable, at least for the present. Agabus's daughters were prophetesses in the church. They taught in the church. That's what they did. Now, how they did it was under certain rules that we have employed in our own church, but they were not to simply sit and be quiet. In fact, they were to cover their heads, ladies. Not spiritual covering. They were literally to cover their heads and prophesy and pray in church. You with me? So next week, I want to see everybody with a hat. All right. No, that's not what I mean. I'm, I'm just kidding, you know, it's my way of being funny. It's not always funny, but 
But nevertheless, this is what he was talking about. Make no mistake, it was not spiritual head covering, whatever the heck that is. That's an event. That's Protestant Protestantism gone crazy. All right. No, he's talking about real head covering. And fourthly, pastors and teachers. So is that one office or two? Well, we've always believed that it's one office and that the pastors to do both of those jobs, pastoring and teachers. So what is the purpose? Let's finish with this. The purpose is verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. It's a twofold use. Gifted people, in other words, the church is the unique place where there are gifted people. Gifted people, pastors, teachers, apostles, evangelists, prophets, they are in the church and they are there for the equipping of the saints and secondly, for the work of ministry. Most of you are probably completely comfortable with being equipped, but second part is being, being equipped for the work of ministry. You see, in most churches, and this is across the board, folks, whether it's Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or all of Protestantism, most churches, with very rare exceptions, see their clergy and then their elders, so clergy being me, and then elders being our ruling elders, and then next our deacons, also another layer of the workers in the church. And what we do is we go to church, we give money, and we leave and go about our business. But that is not the philosophy of Christ the King. It never has been. And if any of you have been in the journey or come to Monday Night Theology or been to Pop Theology at Kinley's or been to my house on Sunday night for Pop Theology there, you know that we tell you we are equipping you. Our job is a singular job. My job is a singular job to equip you for ministry. My job is not to go to the hospital and visit you. Somebody please say Amen. Now, I can go to the hospital and visit you, and that depends a lot on whether or not I like you. Of course I go to the hospital and visit you. But when you hear someone's in the hospital, you're supposed to go visit them. Not me. Well, we pay Chuck to go visit. No, no, I'm sorry. You go visit them. If you get an email and it says somebody's in the hospital, get in your car and go see them. Unless we tell you no, that they're not well and they don't want you to see them. But you should be ready to go. You should be doing the work of ministry. Not me. I should be living a life of leisure. <laughs> no. We are to be equipping you. Your elders, your deacons, and particularly your pastor, I'm to be meeting with you and equipping you, discipling you, helping you learn. And so are the men and women that I have discipled and have taught They're to be discipling and helping you. And then you're to learn how to disciple and help others. And every one of you can do that. Every one of you. Even the younger ones in the church can do it. Because you have friends, right? Don't any of you kids have friends? If you have friends, you can disciple them. Do Do you have a sibling in your home? You can disciple them. Everybody can be doing this. And the great thing about discipleship, folks, as I've told all my journey leaders, someday I'm going to retire. And depending on God's providence and my health, it may be sooner than later. I don't know. He may kill me tomorrow. He's been doing a good job. He's working me over. I don't know how my health's going to hold up. And that's a question mark. But one thing I know is that for the rest of my life, As long as I have breath in my lungs, I can always be discipling somebody, yes? Always. 
You can do this your whole life. How exciting is that? You don't ever have to retire from discipleship. You can disciple your children, your grandchildren, and God willing, your great-grandchildren. You can actually be an influence in people's lives. It's really, truly marvelous to make and equip people, to mobilize and send them where they live, work, and play. Let me give you two quotes and then we'll finish. First of all, from Randy Pope, one of the greatest evangelists and an an introvert at that. Randy's a very quiet, he's just unassuming, he just would, he'd love to sit in a place and just not talk to anybody. And yet this guy makes disciples and makes converts. He's an evangelist. You can't believe it. Very encouraging. And he says this, the most vibrant churches. Do you want Christ the King? How many of you want Christ the King to be a vibrant church and not a dead church? Anybody? I do. I don't want to be in a dead church. I'm already feeling dead sometimes. <laughs> I want to come to a church that's alive that's excited, that wants to see the world change, wants to see their own lives change. Everybody wants to be part of that, yes? We all do. And Randy says the most vibrant churches, listen, are those with an active, well-trained, equipped, and mature laity. So the pressure folks, is on you. But it's not just pressure in a bad way. It's pressure in a good way to get out there and to engage the world around you where you live, work, and play. Everywhere you are, you have something that you can do and something that you can say. And Ligon Duncan, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jacksonville, our flagship church of the PCA, and now Ligon is now president, chancellor actually, of uh, my seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando and elsewhere. Ligon says this, and he's the pastor of one of our biggest churches, or was the pastor. And listen to what he says. He's very bold. Of course, he can get away from it. He's the 800-pound, well, R.C. Sproul's the 800-pound gorilla. Ligon Duncan is the 700-pound gorilla. He's just slightly low. But Ligon says this, wonderful pastor and scholar par excellence. Our job, he's talking about pastors, our job is not to serve for you. And he's talking to his congregation. Our job is not to serve for you. It's to encourage you into service. To carve out some little part of your life for goodness sakes, folks. Somebody did it for you or you wouldn't be here today. But to carve out some little part of your life and do it for someone else. Randy Pope designed the entire journey discipleship after Alcoholics Anonymous because they do it so well. It's amazing. And yet somehow we leave discipleship off. It's like the last thing down at the bottom. And I don't understand it. And, and be encouraged, folks, because Christ the King made it priority number one. We did it over nine years ago, ten years ago, when I went to training for a whole year with Randy Pope and with uh, John Purcell at Perimeter Church, through Perimeter Church. They came here, we went there, we did all kinds of stuff so that we could be trained to disciple people in our church. And thanks be to God, we've done a good job of that. So the challenge, folks, is twofold. First, the leaders. You have got to expect from us, your, your greatest expectation from your pastors are, are they equipping us? 
can I call my pastor and run this question by him or meet with him for coffee or bring my friend to him that I don't know what to tell this person and let my pastor help him. And I'll do that for you. And so will your elders and so will the discipleship leaders, the journey leaders in this church. Any one of them would be happy to do it. And a number of other people that have been trained in this church would be happy to help you. But you, the challenge to you is to avail yourself of it. You must avail yourself of it. You can't just live in isolation. If we go to 1500 Wrestler and we do it in isolation, there will be a for sale sign on that church in three years. Isn't that right? The elders, we've already talked about it. We know that. We have got to go to Wrestler and do the work of ministry. And if we do it, God will bless us. If we go over there and we just make a club out of it, we're going to put a for sale sign on it in three years. That's not meant to discourage you. It's meant to encourage you. Because we have the opportunity of a lifetime to go to this beautiful building in, in the part of town that's expanding. Go drive out there. It's nuts what's going on out there. And we're going to be right in the center and poised and ready to go in our own place finally after many years. Will you do it? Will you trust the Lord and will you do it? That's the question. Why do we do it? Look at verse 9. Let me close with this. That's a parenthetical statement. In fact, in some of your Bibles, you'll see the parentheses. Somebody commented on this. Maybe the Apostle Paul himself commented. We don't know. But someone commented on that statement, he ascended, he descended. And in, say, and in doing that, they said this. In saying he expanded, in other words, they're going to explain to you what that means, he ascended, he descended. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? It does not mean that he descended into the bowels of hell, into Gehenna. That's not what it means. It means that he came from heaven to earth, that he left the glory of his Father's throne room and took on flesh and was born in a filthy manger and took on the vagaries of our humanity and came to this earth so that he could make disciples. That's why he came. To make disciples. And part of making those disciples was to go to the cross and die for those disciples so that they could be free from every single encumbrance of sin and guilt and doubt and fear of death, hell, and the grave. He came in order to take away every shackle, every impediment, everything that would restrict you from stepping into that scary world. And I'm going to be the first to tell you it's a scary world. You step into that scary world and you go to a friend and your friend's going through something bad and you say, you know, have you thought about God? Have you thought about God coming into your life at all? We're afraid that they're going to just throw up all kinds of questions and barriers. Folks, let me tell you something. They're not that smart. People are not that smart. Especially when they're desperate and they're hurting. What they are is desperate and hurting and they need you to tell them there's an answer. I was blind. 
but I see I was lost, but I found my marriage was on the rocks, but it's better today. My kids went off the rails, but they're better today. My career was in jeopardy, but it's better today. I lost my job. But God held my hand and met my needs. I was told I was going to die. But I'm here today long enough. I may die die tomorrow, but I'm here today long enough to tell you Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. Do you see that? That, my friends, is what we're called to do. Do you love Him? Do you love what He's done for you? Then commend Him to those around you. Equip yourself. Come to us. This church is an equipping church. Say what you want to. We do some things wrong. But there are things we do right. And equipping believers and the teaching ministry of this church is the best. And we want you to avail yourself of it so that you can be equipped and take the message of the cross to a world that, folks, they are desperate to hear the gospel. Don't think they're going to throw up impediments to you. They want to hear what you have to say. If you give them the gospel, they want to hear it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us. How desperate we are to become disciples and to be effective in the world around us, especially with those closest to us, with our family and our friends and people that we meet where we live, work, and play. We see the pain in their lives, Father, because we've gone through that pain ourselves. And I do ask that in your great mercy, you would make Christ the King an equipping church and that as we prepare to move into a new location, that that, that equipping ministry of our church would be uh, set into motion in such a way that it will just catch fire and explode to help expand your kingdom. Please help us to do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.